Well, some people get excited when they go to Bush Gardens, and others, particularly children, they well up with anticipation when they go to Disney World. I get excited when I come to Boulevard Bible Chapel. Aww. I feel like I got a lot of brownie points all of a sudden. And let's close in prayer. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, it's a privilege for me and my wife and I, it's kind of weird to say, and my family to be here with you. And if you could turn your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19, we'll be continuing the study you all have been in, in the book of Exodus. <clears throat> and we'll be going over chapter 19 and chapter 20, which is a pretty tall task, but I think we'll get through quite a bit. And we'll begin by reading chapter 19. We'll read the first two verses. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And so there's one significant thing that we can note about the geographical location of where they finally arrived, and that is Sinai. They finally arrived at Sinai. If you recall, in Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. And as he speaks to him, that site was Mount Horeb, which is the same as Mount Sinai. And what he says to him, and I'll just read it to you, in chapter 3, In verse 12, and he says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What's the mountain he's referencing? Mount Sinai. And so chapter 19, they arrive there, a continuation of what we saw in Exodus chapter 3. On this mountain, they'll serve there. And by way of reminder... We know the first 12 chapters of the book of Exodus, they were in Egypt, representative of 430 years. So they were in bondage and they were in slavery in Egypt for 430 years from the ending of Genesis all the way to Exodus chapter 12. Well, chapter 13, oh, something changed. They, you know, 12 plagues later, they, the Red Sea splits, and now they're traveling to Sinai, and they're in the wilderness, and it's about two months, not 430 years, it's only two months. And now we're at chapter 19. After the two months, they arrived at Sinai, a continuation of what we see in Exodus chapter 3. And they're going to be in Sinai for a long time, chapter 19, chapter 20, all the way to the end of the book of Exodus, to chapter 40. And not only that, they continue through the book of Leviticus, all 27 chapters of the book of Leviticus. They're still at this geographical location, at the base of the mountain at Mount Sinai. And not only that, the first 10 chapters of Deuteronomy. So over 50 chapters, they'll be at this, at this spot. And so what we find in chapter 19 is a very significant turning point. God is going to reveal himself in a very unique way, in a very special way, as he reveals himself through his law in chapter, 9, in chapter 20, as we see the Ten Commandments. But before he reveals, he prepares. 
before he reveals, he prepares. And chapter 19 is a chapter of preparation. And we see this in other passages of scripture. We think of Noah. God prepared Noah. And Noah prepared an ark before God revealed his plan for the entire world. We think of John the Baptist, that forerunner, the trailblazer. And he prepared the way of the Lord before the the Lord Jesus was revealed. The Lamb of God who takes away. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sin of the world. And then we consider that, well, you and I, right now, are being prepared. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior today, if you trusted in him, your sins are forgiven, you're on your way to heaven. If you know the Lord Jesus today, you're being prepared. Because right now, what is Christians waiting for? Right now, we're talking about a, a time, an era, a dispensation of love. But right now, we're in the dispensation of grace. And right now, we're waiting for the time clock to start. And we're waiting for our coming Savior. That glorious appearing, that glorious revealing that the bridegroom would appear. That he'd come for this amazing marriage that we're waiting for. But before the bridegroom is revealed... The bride is being prepared. If you know the Lord Jesus this morning, you're the bride of Christ. You're this beautiful, elegant bride that God cherishes and he's preparing for this amazing marriage that will take place one day. You know, I'm reminded of of John chapter 14 as we consider preparing. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I come to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, that you may be also. God is preparing a place for us even now, right now in heaven. God is preparing a place for us, mansions in heaven. And we consider, if God created all of the earth in six days, can you imagine if he's been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years? Can you imagine what the sight that is there is to see? I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine. We'd see the colors of the rainbow from 400 and 700 nanometers in the, electro, the electromagnetic spectrum. Can you imagine colors outside of that spectrum? You can't even imagine it. And I think we go sightseeing. We want to travel around the world, and we want to see different sights. Can you imagine the sight to behold in heaven when we see our, fa- uh, favor, our Savior face to face? When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. And I'm reminded of Amos chapter 4. Are you prepared this morning? Are you prepared to, to meet your God? And it's a, a fearful thing. I was telling Lisa that she's like, I'm really scared right now. Like, don't be scared. Because if you know the Lord Jesus, Jesus paid it all. One thing that we find in Exodus chapter 19 is that God is speaking. As I read this chapter over and over again, you see God speaking over and over again. And out of the 717 words in, in chapter 19, th- over 300 of them is God directly speaking. It's like over 40%. And when we go to chapter 20, it's 80%. 80% is God directly speaking to us. And I think that's one thing that we see in Scripture. That's one thing that we see in all of our lives. Right now, you go outside and you see all of creation declares the glory of God. God is speaking to us. The heavens and earth declare the glory of God. His fingerprint, his, his handiwork. We think of uh, the conscience. We see that in Romans chapter 2. We have a conscience. We 
We're different from animals. You ever think about that? We're so different from animals. Animals operate by instinct. But God has given us something different in the fabric of our being. We know, we think like him. We know right from wrong. You know, if I, I always say this, and I, I say a lot of these things ad nauseum. If I were to trip over a rock, I wouldn't hold the, ro- the rock morally responsible for tripping me. You know, two barracudas are in the ocean, and one shark eats the barracuda. One barracuda doesn't tell the other barracuda, I'm going to take you to court because you, you, you harmed me, you hurt me. But, you know, the difference is we're moral. We have right from wrong. It's in the fabric of our being. We think like God because he made us like him. He made us in his image. And so our conscience, us knowing right from wrong, what makes us unique, reveals and speaks of God. We think of the law reveals God, and we think of Hebrews chapter 1. God in times past spoke to the prophets, and these last days he has spoken to us, he's speaking to us, and will speak to us through his son. He speaks to us through, us, through the Lord Jesus. And I was thinking, if all the, the, the word of God speaks of the Lord Jesus, it speaks of a God who loved us, a God who cares for us, who wants the best for us, who redeemed us, who gave his son for us, he gave his all for us. And, you know, in every chapter, in every verse, in every book of the Bible, in every proverb, in every parable, in every prophecy, one overarching truth remains. And it is evident that God is revealing himself to us. God is speaking to us. And we see that in chapter 19. We're going to look, we're going to use that as an outline. And so what we find in chapter 19 is this pattern. God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the children of Israel. The Israel then has a response back to Moses. Moses reports back to God. So God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to Israel. Israel speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to God. And we see that God is, in the, at the burning bush, God is speaking to Moses. Here, God is speaking to Israel, and he uses Moses as a mediator. And every time, we see these three different times that God speaks to Moses, and the first time is very clear as we consider verses 3 through 8, and the other two times we'll, we'll look at it, similar in fashion. And what we'll see is we'll give a title for each time God is speaking. And so verses 3 through 8, as we just look for a structure... In chapter 19, in verses 3 through 8, he's declaring his purpose. In verses 9 through 15, as we see God speak to Moses, and Moses speaking to Israel, well, he sanctifies his people. And verses 10 through 25, in um, Exodus chapter 19, he manifests his presence. And oh, what a manifestation it is. And we heard a little bit about that at the breaking of bread this morning as we see the thunders and the lightnings and the the smoke and the Lord um, come down in a thick cloud. And as he's going to reveal something very special, something very unique, a turning point in all human history as he reveals himself through his law, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And so let's read verses 3 through 8. Maybe if someone could read that aloud, nice and, nice and loud, verses 3 through 8. Amen. I think the, it's beautiful that the very first thing God does as he speaks to Israel is that he says, well, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who um, 
bore you up in eagle's wings. And what that means is that he brought us out of freedom. They were in bondage. They were waiting there. And he brought them to a place of freedom. And so before he tells and reveals what his plan is for them, he bases what he's going to say on what he's already done. He bases what he's, what he's going to say to them on what he's already done. So he reminds them that I brought you out of, out of Egypt. And I can't help but think that we stand in that very situation. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I don't really believe. It's just such a big, big leap of faith. It's a, it's a leap of faith to believe. But, you know, I think of an illustration. I was reminded last night, I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about if I went to another country, and if I had appendicitis, and I was in a lot of pain, I knew that I'm probably going to need some sort of surgery, and being in another country, not being familiar with the turf and the hospital system, and uh, what if I saw a man with a construction hat on his head and a hammer in his, head, in his hand, and he said, um, I'm a doctor. I could do the surgery. And uh, he doesn't really look like he's fit for, to be a doctor, but he, can't, he comes with a hammer in his hand and a construction hat in his head. He says, I have a clinic over here. I could, I could just do it really quick. Well, I, I, that would be a leap, leap of faith. I would be scared to death. I don't know this man. I don't know if he's ever done it before. I don't know if he has any credentials. I don't know if he's actually a doctor. He has a construction hat on his head. I mean, that would be a leap of faith. But now let's change the scenario. Imagine now here, we all know Memorial West, a very fine hospital. And you know you're having appendicitis, and your friend tells you, oh, I had this doctor. His name is Dr. Skelton, let's just say. Just throwing a random name out there. And he's a fine doctor. He's, a, he's an amazing doctor. He did my surgery, and he did a fine job. And he took away my appendix, and it all went very, very well. He did a really, really good job. And as you, as you went to the, the hospital, you find other people talking about it. You see accolades on the wall of all the different appendix surgeries he's done. You see, when we trust in Christ, we are standing here on this side of the cross, we see what Christ has already done on the cross on our behalf. We see that he went to the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again. I know that I can trust in him. I can believe in him because of what, of what he's already done. And so when, he, when we see the New Testament and we see the gospel, it's not a leap, leap of faith because we know that Jesus paid it all on the cross and he accomplished all things there. And so God begins by saying, I delivered the Egyptians. I bore you up on eagles' wings. And he bases what he's going to say on what he's already done. And so as we read the first thing he says, and we see the pattern there. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, and thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the, the children of Israel. And what he's declaring here as his purpose is that he wants Israel to follow his covenant. And that there's a transition here. No longer are they in, a, in the dispensation previously, in the, the covenant they had previously. Now it's the Mosaic covenant. He's revealing his law. He's revealing himself. And the, the response of the people, you see a you see a reminder as God reminds them. You see a, a requirement, a result. And you see their response. And they respond by saying, all that, all that the Lord says, we will do. 
All that the Lord says, we will do. Right before that, though, he says, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We consider the Old Testament priesthood. And one element of the priesthood is that one, a priest would be one who intercedes for another. And we see that in, in, in the life of Moses. Moses wasn't a priest, he was a prophet, but he interceded for the people. He stood there on behalf as a representative of the people, and he would go to God. And we saw that in, as we read this morning at the Breaking of Bread at, in chapter 20. But the people say, you go, we're frightened, we're terrified. You go, be on our, operate on our behalf. And there's a greater Moses, there's a better Moses. We see it in the Lord Jesus. That Christ is our high priest. He ever makes intercession for us. He intercedes for us. We go to him and he takes our prayers to God. If you know the Lord Jesus today, we are priests. We don't have to go to a singular priest. We, we are priests. That's a, a truth that we've seen in the New Testament. The priesthood of the believer. And we find, if you know the Lord Jesus, you trust in the Lord Jesus, we find that you are a chosen generation, the scripture teaches. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, they proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. And I was thinking, it might be a little tangent, but he called us out of darkness. Can you imagine if this room was completely dark and I wouldn't be able to see anything in the room? I have that inability. I wouldn't know the pieces of furniture in here. But we know that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, he comes into the world amidst our condition. We were in darkness. We were afar off. We were sinful. We were separated. That was our condition. And we think of the Lord Jesus being the light of the world, he came down and he reveals himself. And we think of how God speaks in all of creation. He speaks through conscience, he speaks through his law, he speaks through his son, he speaks through his word. And I was reminded of, of this dialogue as a, a famous intellectual man by the world standards, uh, a, a man by the name of Richard Dawkins. And I, I, many would know this if you watched the uh, documentary Expelled, number three documentary in the world. And so Ben Stein would ask Richard Dawkins, he'd say, well, you know, if you could think about all that you received, if you were to stand before God and considering all the book sales and all the revenue and all the, all the good things that God has given you, what would you say to him? And Richard Dawkins said this famous line, and it breaks my heart. And he says, why did God go through such pangs to hide himself. Why did God go through such pangs to hide himself? And when you consider the scripture and you consider the Lord Jesus, I, I submit to you the, it's the, the question is the opposite. Why did God go through such pangs to reveal himself, to show himself, to, to speak to us amidst our condition? We were in darkness, but the Lord Jesus, he's a light of the world. He came down into darkness. Open my eyes that I might see as the the Chorus states. And we can be thankful this morning of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross for us, that our sins can be forgiven. And as we keep going in, in chapter 19, 
We'll read verses 9 through 15. And so God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. People speak to Moses and back to God. And the second time we see it, we see it in chapters 9 through 15. It's not him declaring his purpose. It's him well, sanctifying his people. He's sanctifying his people. Maybe, maybe James, James Munoz, if he can um, um, read verses 9 through 15. And so as, as God speaks to the children of Israel, he wants his people to be sanctified. Before he reveals himself in chapter 20, he sanctifies his people. And I was thinking in my mind, as the Lord wants us to be sanctified, and he wanted the children of Israel to be sanctified, to be set apart. Uh, I was thinking of an illustration, that, one that would fit in this passage here. And I was thinking about a wedding and how a wedding day is in a sense, it's sanctified, it's set apart. It's different from every other day. It's only one day in your entire life. It's, it's a sanctified, set apart day. And a bride in all of its anticipation thinks about the wedding day and wears a gown that's in a sense sanctified, it's set apart. It's not a gown that you would wear to church. It's not a gown that you would wear in any other situation. And this gown is, is different, it's, it's traditionally white. It, uh, symbolizes um, purity, and it's, just, it's clean. And we think of, of Moses here speaking to the children of Israel, wash their garments, wash their garments, sanctify yourself, consecrate yourself, prepare yourself for what's to come. And that's what that bride does. She prepares herself for a sanctified event, an event that's so special, so unique. One thing that a bride wouldn't do, and can you imagine the, almost the paranoia of a bride? Uh, don't, you know, she's not going to eat buffalo chicken wings. Why wouldn't she eat buffalo chicken wings? Because the, the likelihood for some of that, that, that sauce, that's, I mean, it's, I mean, you have to wear, you probably might as well just change your clothes because sometimes it gets kind of, uh, the, the, it gets kind of messy, shrapnel and all. And a bride would never do that because she would, it's a, it's a special day. It's a sanctified day. She's going to be very careful, very conscious, conscious of, of what she does and what she eats and where she goes. And so this is a, a sanctified moment. As, as God prepares his people, he sanctifies them as he reveals the Ten Commandments. And so in verses 10 through 25, actually 16 to 25, God manifests his presence as we'll see in the Ten Commandments. And so I'm just going to read that, and we're going to go along. Verse 16, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people were in the camp trembled. And the Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended with smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, it became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai and the on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through the gate uh, to gaze at the Lord. And many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, 
lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And so God speaks to Moses, and Moses speaks to the people. We know that they just went to sanctify themselves and consecrate themselves, and now God manifests his presence in a very dramatic scene as he prepares, he prepares them as he reveals his Ten Commandments. And we're going to continue along here. And in chapter 20, I'm going to read through chapter 20. If you could follow along, I'm going to just read the first 17 verses. And then God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations, and of those who hate me but showing mercy to those, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days will be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And so we see ten commandments given. And what the commandments are is a divine standard, a prescription for righteousness. It's a righteous requirement that is necessary to satisfy God who is holy and righteous and infinitely perfect. Uh, MacArthur writes, He is satisfied to nothing less than perfect adherence to his complete righteous law. Any breach of that law, any violation of that law, any disobedience to that law produces death and judgment. And so God reveals his law. And it's different from how it was before. There was no law. Can you imagine if you were driving a car? And there's no speed limit. Well, if you drive 150 miles an hour, can you get a ticket? No. But if you know in your conscience, you know that there's a, a children's school crossing, you know children are crossing, you know you shouldn't drive too fast. Well, you know that, there's, that it's wrong. You should slow down. But now the law is revealed. Now the standard of righteousness is being revealed. The righteous requirement that, that would satisfy God is revealed if you, as long as you don't go over 45 miles an hour. If you go 46 miles an hour, do you break the law? Yes, we've broken the law. And it reveals God's standard, God's prescription. 
And we find here, well, the people, when, they, when they're given the light, so all that you, you give us, we will do. Has anybody ever went 46 miles an hour in a, in a 45? I think we've, we've all broken the law at some point. I, I don't think we're able to keep all of the law. And so before we go further into the, the commandments individually, which I don't know if we'll have time to get through it all, but uh, we, we think of the New Testament. There's three different ways we consider the law. There's a twofold summarization of the law. There's the tenfold summarization of the law, and there's the manifold summarization of the law. And so we know when we look at the New Testament, we, we see the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And if you could love the Lord your God with all your, your heart and all your soul, mind, and strength, well, you would fulfill the law. You would fulfill what, what is required of God, and you would satisfy him fully. And it also says, well, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's two directions of our relationship. Well, number one, there's the vertical plane. You should love the Lord your God. Well, the, the first four commandments are on the vertical plane. It's, it's the two tables of the law. It's my relationship with God. And if I could fulfill the law perfectly and love the Lord God perfectly in all my human capacity, well, I would fulfill every obligation of the law. And if I could love my neighbor as myself, if I could love people perfectly, sacrificially, and I, I remember there was an elder here in times past, uh, Mr. Gustafson, and uh, he used to always say, where there's people, there's problems. Where there's people, there's problems. You know, sometimes it's hard to hug a porcupine, you know. Uh, no offense to anybody, but sometimes it's tough to get along with people. It takes a lot of effort. And, um, and to love your neighbor as yourself. To love them. If, you could, if we could actually fulfill that perfectly, well, we would fulfill all the obligation of the law. And so we see the first four commandments is our relationship with God. And the latter six is our relationship with man. And we see a tenfold, a, a further explanation, a further expression of that in Exodus chapter 20. And so the first four commandments, they all are given an explanation. The first uh, commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. No gods before me. The explanation is given first and then the commandment. Commandment 2, 3, and 4, it, the commandment is given first. No carved, no graven images, and then the explanation. Um, don't, don't take the, the Lord's name in vain, commandment 3. Commandment 4, um, keep the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you work, seventh day you rest. And that's not because we rested. That's remembering what God rested. Six days he created the world. That's Genesis chapter 2. And the seventh day he rested, and it's a memorial to what God did, remembering that he rested on the seventh day. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. That's the first one. That, it doesn't have an explanation. It comes with a promise that you may live long. And the next are all just statements. And from the fifth, the fifth commandment to the tenth commandment, the latter six, you have your relationship with man. And so the manifold, it, it, well, all these commandments are expounded in other passages of scripture. And so the first commandment, I'm not going to go through all of them. In Exodus chapter 22, you're not to, well, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. It talks about not having any sacrifice to any other deity in Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 34, we're not to worship any other deity. In the second commandment, um, no graven images. And you see that in other passages of scripture. Deuteronomy 32 speaks of the anger uh, that God has toward that and the crime it is to have false gods. And 
you know, this is our set of Ten Commandments. Others have different sets of the Ten Commandments. If you go to the Roman Catholic Church, they have a different set of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain. The, the third commandment, um, remember the Sabbath. What did they skip? And how did they come up with ten? Well, they forgot, well, do not make any graven images, no carven images. And so their set is different. And I think in my mind, if, if, if they had the, the right set, no graven image, no carven image, I think things may be a little different. And what they do is they take the, the tenth commandment, which is um, do not covet, and they break it into two different covenants, do not cover your neighbor's wife, and so on. But we consider the, the first commandment, on the vertical plane, my relationship with God, uh, no other gods before me, no graven images. And um, I'll say one more thing about that. I, I remind, I'm reminded of a story I once heard, uh, a missionary who goes um, to India in, in a village. And I think sometimes we think that, oh, you know, that was then and this is now. It's a message from Aaron Renth years ago. That was then and this is now. This is idolatry is carving a, a, you know, a statue and worshiping it. We don't, we don't have idols in our day. And there was a, a village in India, and a, a missionary came to this, to this uh, a woman who had a statue of a, of a chicken, a, a chicken statue. And she took a chicken, and she was cutting up the chicken and pouring its blood on the chicken statue. And so this missionary is like, I, I have to have a conversation with this woman. She looked relatively civilized, and while she was cutting chickens up and, and placing it on a, a chicken statue. And he comes up to her, and, and he's blown away by what she says. He says to her, so, I don't know why he said this question. He says, so have you ever been to America? And she said, yes, and I'll never go back. It's like, oh, okay, why? And she said, because of the idolatry. And he said, are you aware you're cutting off the head of a chicken and pouring its blood on a chicken statue? I mean, it's really hard to believe because our idea of idolatry is that of a, of a carved image. And he's like, do tell. Please, tell me why. Why because of the idolatry? Because their, their God is their belly, and they have restaurants at every street corner. Their God is their, their sports players. They have multi-million dollar complexes to house them. And get this, this is the one that struck, struck a chord to me. Their God is their televisions. And where their family should come together and have fellowship, there's this, this box on an elevated platform, and all of our chairs all sit around it as we spend hours upon hours standing there before it. And I, I think there's... A, there's there's some grace there. I don't think we should all take our televisions. If you do, please give them to me, especially if it's more than 50 inches. But um, I don't think that's the premise there. But the idea is that God wants to be the central part of our lives. He wants to be that central place. And anything that we put above that, well, it's idolatry. It says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And we can say much more about that. No graven images. And there's two things that we can know about the law. Number one, what does the law teach us about God? Number two, what the law cannot do. And what it teaches us about God is that God is a holy God and a righteous God and an infinitely perfect God, and he has a righteous requirement. And if we could do all the things that the law said, we would fulfill that requirement. And God would say, come on in, you come into heaven. See, what the law cannot do is it can't save us. It can't save us. The law cannot save. It just shows us that we're sinful. And our sin separates us from God. You know, this last week was Shark Week, and I was thinking about sharks. And, you know, if you imagine a person standing in shark-infested water, and there's a sign that said, no swimming, shark-infested water. Well, 
that person or myself, if I saw that sign and I was in the water, I wouldn't be mad at the sign. I wouldn't be mad at the person who put the sign up. But the sign doesn't save me. It just reveals to me, it shows to me that I have a problem. Impending doom, shark infested water. The, the sign itself doesn't transform into a jet ski to be able to remove me from the, from the situation. It just shows me that I have a problem. And so the law reveals to us sin. Romans chapter 7, I would not have known sin if it wasn't for the law. What the law cannot do is save us. And what Christ did on the cross, if you can imagine, uh, I always think of this courtroom scene where I stand before God, this holy and righteous judge, and I stand before him, and I know that I've broken the law many times. James 2.10 says, if you've broken one law, you're guilty of them all. It's like a 10-link chain. If you're dangling from a cliff, how many would have to, to break before you plummet to your doom? One, only one. And I've broken the law. I stand before a holy, righteous God, and he says, you're guilty. You've broken the law. You're headed to prison. I'm headed to hell. And I look at the, God, I look at the judge and say, you're a good judge. You're a loving judge. I think you overlooked my fine. Let me, let me go free. Well, God's not going to do that. If he's going to remain good and right, and perfect, he has to pay the penalty for that crime. And so what, what Christ does is the back doors of that, that courtroom open up, and Jesus walks up to the judge and says, I'll pay that fine. I, I know I've said this ad nauseum, but the truth is so sweet. And so Christ comes up and knows he had a debt. He paid a debt he didn't know, and we had a debt we couldn't pay. And the righteous requirement of the law was so heavy, it was so burdensome, we could never keep it. And the people, in, the people of Israel would say, all that the Lord says we will do, that's very doubtful. And they found out later on the failures of, of not being able to keep the law. And so Jesus pays it all on the cross. All that the law requirement was fulfilled in Christ. And if you know the Lord Jesus this morning, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you receive him into your heart. You receive him into your life. Um, the Bible says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and lets me in, I will dine with him. And so the Lord is speaking. And it says in Amos 4, Prepare to meet God. And so we could prepare to meet him today as he fulfilled the law in the Lord Jesus. And let's just close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we have to come together. You know, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And we see the, the, the wreckage of man's sin, and the failure of not being able to keep the law. And we're thankful that Jesus paid it all on the cross and that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And now we have the spirit of God, the new covenant. The old covenant we weren't able to keep, but the new covenant, the Lord sends his spirit. He comes into us and he writes his law in our hearts. And he fulfills that which we couldn't do on our own. I'm thankful for that. And we can stand here who were once in darkness, who once were far off, who once were separated, and know that the light of the world came into darkness, and he paid for our sin, that we could know him and know um, the Lord Jesus. And one day we'll see him face to face. Father, we're thankful for this time that, to come together, and we commit this time into your hands. And we pray all this in your son's name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.